Thanks for tuning in to the Health Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Richie Kerwin, and today I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Louise Newson. Dr. Newson is a GP and a menopause specialist who feels passionately about improving education about the perimenopause, menopause, and improving awareness of hormone replacement therapy. And to that end, in 2019, she launched her first book, Menopause Manual, which went on to become an Amazon bestseller. On top of all that, Dr. Newson has been a director for the Primary Care Women's Health Forum, as well as an editor for the British Journal of Family Medicine, all the while also being involved in research with colleagues in Warwick University, London School of Tropical Medicine, and also King's College London. The reason I wanted to speak with Dr. Newson stems from a fantastic episode of the Sigma Nutrition Podcast with Danny Lennon, uh, with Avram Blooming and Carl Tavris, which was all about menopause, but more specifically about the Women's Health Initiative, which created a lot of misinformation about menopause. I realised that most women were not aware of information that could potentially make a huge impact on their health and quality of life. And that's why I wanted to speak with a real menopause expert today to make that information more available, uh, at least to my listeners. I really hope you enjoy this episode and even learn something from it because I can't begin to tell you how much I learned from Louise. And if you do, I'd love it if you left a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. Or if you're listening on YouTube, consider hitting the like button and subscribing for more great podcasts. And if you can, please share the podcast on Facebook or Instagram, Twitter, or even LinkedIn. Not only do I massively appreciate it, but it helps promote the podcast to more people, which really encourages other guests to come and speak. And that means I can get even more great content out to you. So onto this conversation with Louise. Let's talk science. How are you doing, Dr. Nelson? Yeah, good, thank you. Fantastic. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time to, to speak with us today. And uh, we've got a lot of people who are tuned in. I'm really, really looking forward to, to hearing what you have to, uh, to speak about. Um, I, just want, I was just wondering, um, just to start things off, would you be able to give us a little bit of an introduction to who you are and, uh, and what it is you do, please? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a GP and a medical specialist. So I have a background in hospital medicine. So I'm not a gynecologist at all, but I'm very interested in the menopause, which clearly affects all women if they live long enough. And I'm very interested in the health risks of the menopause. So when we have low estrogen level, it's associated with symptoms often, but it's also associated with diseases, which we can talk about. Um, so I have um, uh, set up a clinic in Stratford-upon-Avon in, in the UK, and we have, I have 12 other GPs working with me. So we, we, we offer a very holistic care for women who are menopausal. So we obviously see people as physicians, but we also have a yoga studio there. We have a nutritionist, a pelvic floor physio. We have a whole team of people. Uh, but I also do a lot of education. So I do work with the Royal College of GPs. I do a lot of education for doctors, nurses, pharmacists. Um, but I also do a lot of work empowering women so they're given the right information. So I'm not paid for by pharma. I'm not sponsored by anyone. Um, it's just really important for me that women are given the right information information and I as you know set up a website called menopausedoctor.co.uk 
um, which has a lot of evidence-based, non-biased information there. I also do a weekly podcast uh, for people. And then we, um, I've written a book, the, the, the Haynes Medicals Manual. Um, and I'm constantly just trying to find ways to let people know about a natural process that affects us all directly as women but indirectly men get affected as well so <laughs> so I, i'm quite busy i i can imagine that uh, and i i really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today um just one question before we start what was it that made you decide to to get into this um kind of educational aspect of your career and educating people more about um, so I've had quite an interesting career. I wanted to be an oncologist or a cancer specialist initially and I've actually been with my husband since medical school so we met each other in the 80s and have been together um, since then but he's a surgeon and actually if two of people want to do full-time hospital medicine it's hard if you have children so I changed my career path and then I always wanted to do more with education and have a bit of a Sort of alternative career because I've got three children as well so I've always done a lot of writing for uh, patients and also to help for doctors as well and then I've always loved helping menopausal women as a GP because it's one of the few things you can really make a difference to people you can help their symptoms and you can help their future health but there's been so much controversy about HRT um, and even the partners that I worked with in my practice were very anti-HRT so I felt for decades, really, I've been very frustrated that women have been um, undercut, really, and not been allowed to have HRT. And then in 2015, the NICE, the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence guidelines came out um, and were very clear that for the majority of women, women the benefits outweigh the risks of HRT. So I set up um, a clinic really to help a few friends who were being given antidepressants um, instead of HRT. And because I was then experiencing symptoms myself, realizing how terrible they were and not being able to get the right help. So I set up this website and it sort of spiraled out of control. And um, I feel really sad that women are suffering in a way that they shouldn't. So it's 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 on I'm on this sort of conveyor belt where I can't stop almost. So I've sort of fell into it a bit. Um, but I've also because I'm very interested in disease prevention and ways that we can not access our doctors and we can keep living healthily. Um, and some of it's with medicine, some of it's with diet, with exercise, with our well-being and everything else. So it, it fits together with lots of areas of medicine that I'm very interested in really. Fantastic. And, and hopefully we'll get to, to go into um, a lot of that today. Um, I suppose to, to really start off the conversation, um, would you be able to tell us a little bit about what uh, the menopause actually is uh, and what women can expect from the menopause when, uh, when you know, that eventually happens? Yeah, absolutely. So if you break down the word menopause, men, meno means menstrual cycle, so women's periods, pause clearly means stop. So it's a weird diagnosis because it's actually a retrospective look back in time diagnosis. So officially, to be menopausal, a woman has to have not had her period for a year. And that's quite hard because a lot of people find that their periods change. They may become more frequent, less frequent, and they start to get symptoms. Um, so a lot of women are actually perimenopausal. And peri just means around the time of the menopause when hormones start reducing. Um, so that can happen for quite a few years, sometimes a decade before the menopause. So because we have cells that respond to the hormone estrogen, 
the main uh, female hormone all around our body, we can have symptoms in any part of our body and that can really vary. So a lot of people know about the hot flushes, night sweats that occur in around 75% of women. But lots of women experience uh, symptoms due to the lack of hormones in our brains. So such, symptoms such as low mood, poor, and poor concentration, brain fog, memory problems, fatigue. Um, a lot of women worry they might have dementia. And then it can affect our muscles and joints, so muscle pains, joint stiffness. Uh, people can get palpitations, even asthma can worsen. People can get dry eyes, dry mouth. Um, and then people can also get symptoms such as urinary symptoms, recurrent urinary tract infections, incontinence, all sorts that can happen. Um, so it, it, and people find that their symptoms can vary between women and they can change. So a lot of symptoms can last on average for around seven years and then people might find they improve but then they get other symptoms such as the anxiety or symptoms related to vaginal dryness. So um, it really does vary but as I've already said, when we have low hormone levels, we have an increased risk of diseases such as heart disease, osteoporosis, type 2 diabetes, dementia, even obesity as well. So these are long-term health problems that are very common in women who have gone through the menopause. So, for example, a woman's five times more likely to have a heart attack after the menopause than before because oestrogen is protective. It's an anti-inflammatory so it protects so much of our system, like our heart system, keeps our bones strong, keeps our brains working. So without the hormones, there can be problems. So even in women who don't have any symptoms, they still have low hormones. And this is what needs to be addressed, really. So the, it's, it's not uh, a simple condition by, by any means whatsoever. There seems to be a lot involved. Um, one, one thing that I found particularly interesting is you said that it's almost a, a retrospective diagnosis of, of the condition. And for a lot of women, that must mean that there must be a lot of uncertainty around the time of development or around peri perimenopause. Um, and is there often a lot of misdiagnosis with, oh, with menopause? Yeah, and, and I think the thing, thing is about the menopause is, or well, the perimenopause, is there's not a single blood test. If I was thinking if someone, for example, was diabetic, I could do their sugar level and I'd know very quickly if they were or not. With um, the menopause and perimenopause, we go, it's a clinical diagnosis, so we go on symptoms. And if any of you put in questionnaire on my website, you'll see the Green Clemenceric Score, which is an evidence-based research tool, but it's got physical, psychological, uh, vasomotor symptoms. And it's very useful for women to monitor their symptoms. And if their periods have changed or stopped, then they should consider whether they have got the perimenopause or menopause. If women are under the age of 40, then we often do do a hormone blood test because it's important to get the diagnosis right. But there are a lot of women who are having these symptoms and they're being misdiagnosed with depression, uh, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, um, you know, urinary symptoms. We see hundreds of women that get referred for brain scans because they think they've got dementia or they've got headaches, worsening migraines. So. Um, it's really important that all healthcare professionals, whatever specialty, um, are educated in the menopause so they can make the diagnosis because it's quite scary. You know, I had symptoms for a few months and I couldn't remember the doses of very common antibiotics and painkillers that I'd been prescribing for 20 years because my 
brain wasn't working and then my migraines were worse and you know it, it's quite scary if you don't know what's going on to your body um i I'm, i really want to kind of get into how let's say the general medical community or gps in general treat uh menopause or treat women around the age of menopause but before we we do that i'd, I'd like to talk a little bit more about um some of the specific symptoms that 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 you mentioned obviously one that everybody associates with menopause um would be the hot flashes night sweats um and things like that and I, you you said that about 75% of women suffer from those just for for anybody who might not be aware what exactly are they and what 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 do they entail what does it feel like for people well they really vary they really vary between women and um what it happens is that the estrogen is very important for the thermoregulatory zone in our brains and so without it this this changes so it's not the same as having a, a fever if you had an illness or infection um and some people find they literally just burn up some people will describe it's from their toes all the way up their body to their faces some people just get sweating you know some people tell me that just the back of their neck becomes very wet or their whole whole hair some people are sweating as well as flushing um and it can if it occurs at night that's why it's called night sweats but um they're together they're collectively called vasomotor symptoms a lady told me in my clinic earlier today that she had this feeling of ice blocks all over her body and some people find they get very cold and then they suddenly get this flash or flush or heat but other people don't get the heat they just um get this ice cold feeling um so it it's it's all very different for for different people and they often obviously can really affect people but a lot of people find that they're not the worst symptoms you know they're not the symptoms that are resulting in people having to give up their jobs which they commonly do for the menopause it's usually the psychological problems and the memory problems that that really affect people the most Wow. Um you you also mentioned that so that doesn't sound to me like something that's pleasant at all but you also mentioned that like some of the symptoms of menopause can go on for you said an average of 7 years which means that there's probably some cases where it goes on for a little bit longer than that. Yeah. Just out of curiosity what are some of the the, the more extreme situations that you you're aware of? Well, it really varies. Um I mean, I saw a lady in my clinic a few weeks ago who was 72 and she had a hysterectomy when she was 39 and she'd had hot flushes since that time and she kept thinking they would get better, they would get better. So that's a long time if you work out your maths. Um and then um like I say the the symptoms can change. So there's a lot of people who become very anxious they have very low self esteem low self confidence they stop going out they don't like socializing they don't like driving they don't like getting on public transport and they think that's just part of getting older as opposed to it being a hormone problem so if you say to these women are you menopausal well they'll say well i've gone through the menopause my flushes have stopped but actually we know that these symptoms are related because if we give them hrt which replaces their hormones those symptoms improve so um so that's why it'd be very hard to know the other symptom which um is very common that it's not very often talked about is vaginal dryness and that affects between 70 and 80% of women yet we know from studies about 7% of women have treatment so it's a huge problem and this means that the majority of women who aren't taking hrt will develop it and obviously it can be very uncomfortable to have penetrative sex but there's a lot of women who find that 
sitting down is uncomfortable, wearing underclothes, they've stopped cycling, they've stopped uh, putting on a swimming costume if they wanted to go swimming because it's so uncomfortable. Um, and it's one of these big taboos, no one speaks about it, they don't realise. And as you know, the vagina is near the bladder and the urethra, the tube we um, urinate out of. And there's estrogen receptors there. So a lot of women have symptoms such as vaginal, um, so urinary incontinence, so sort of leaking, dribbling, coughing, sneezing is a problem, but they won't realize that's related to their menopause. So it, this is why it's so important if you understand how important estrogen is, you can then work out the problems if you don't have it in your body as a woman. Do, do you think it's also quite likely, um, just because you mentioned some of these you know, conditions are, are considered to be a bit taboo that some women just endure them and don't bother you know, speaking to their GP about them or doing anything about them at all. Yeah, absolutely. Some people think, well, it's just part of getting older. It's part of um, life. So they don't realise um, that. And also they don't realise that there's a safe and effective treatments. And the guidelines that I mentioned already, the NICE guidance we work out for, are very clear that women should have individualised treatment and help. And so we're all individual, men and women. So we need to um, have the right help. But some people find that it's embarrassing um, that they don't want to waste the doctor's time, that they think it's trivial. And also because the menopause isn't a disease. So, you know, normally we go to a doctor if we've got a disease and this isn't a disease. So they think it's maybe a bit trivial or, or maybe they're not suffering as much as their friend or their relative who maybe has had a worse experience. And then some women just think, well, it will get better with time. So they just, you know, um, so a lot of it is, is education and knowing what is, you know, in my mind, no one should have symptoms because, you know, we've got treatments. There's there's ways of improving um, symptoms as well as um, quality of life as well. So it's it's very important that women are not made to feel that they can't talk about it. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. Um, and one thing that I've, just because I work in, obviously, in the nutrition field, one thing that I hear regularly um from uh, from women that I've worked with is that when they get older, they a lot of them notice that they're they'll describe it as their body shape changes yeah, or they feel that they seem to be gaining fat in certain parts of their body. Mm. What what would be the the reason for that happening um, around the time of menopause? Yeah, so often people find that they get more midline um, fat deposition, which is really grim when you've got low self esteem. You feel um, you've got less energy or less motivated and then even if your diet doesn't change you find that you put on weight which is really horrible as women we're always conscious aren't we of our weight um, and that's partly because the body's metabolism changes without estrogen I've already said there's an increased risk of diabetes but before diabetes there's an increased risk of metabolic syndrome um, well, the body tries to conserve or get any estrogen it can because the ovaries have stopped making it. Um, and so one of the ways it does it is by creating fat cells, if you like, because they produce estrogen. They produce a different type of estrogen called estrone, which is quite weak. So you have to have quite a lot of it to, to have some effects. And so it's very common that women put on weight, even if they don't change their diet. But then a lot of women find they get sugar cravings because they have low estrogen levels. And they just, you know, when you're feeling really fed up and you can't sleep and your brain's gone to mush and you can't exercise because your joints are stiff, 
I can really see why people's diet changes, you know, and it's, it's not because they want their diet to change. It's because they feel dreadful. So there's, there's, you know, there's lots of different reasons often why people find they, that they put on or change weight, but also alcohol, obviously is lots of hidden calories. People tend to drink more to numb their symptoms and then often sleep is really affected. So people find that their quality of sleep is not nearly as good without their hormones. And we know um, that poor sleep is associated with weight gain, even if you do nothing different. So there's lots of reasons why poor women put on weight during the perimenopause and menopause. Uh, that, that is um, a really, really good explanation of why that might happen. Um, in, in particular, the, the poor sleep and, you know, when you said that, you know, about 75% of women have to deal with like hot flashes and night sweats. If your sleep is that affected and you're suffering from that much, you know, that lack of sleep, you know, you know we, we speak about it a lot in nutrition, the, the effect that it has on, on appetite and, you know, desire for, you know, sweet or sugary fat foods. Um, it's, it's no surprise that people, you know, can wake and eat. I mean, it's very interesting, even people that don't have night sweats still wake up um, in, in the night. And it can be sometimes just for a short period of time, but sometimes it can be for a long period of time. And it's one of the first things that people thank me for when they go on HRT is that their sleep comes back. And, you know, without sleep, we're useless. Um, you know, I've done enough on call as a junior doctor. I've got three children and I know what it's like to not get sleep. And it's it's vile. It's a form of torture, isn't it? You know, so... Absolutely. Um, another thing, so obviously we, we, we've spoken about some of the, the acute symptoms and, and there's a, there are a lot of them, but you did mention that there are some serious long-term implications of, of menopause. Um, and I think a lot of these are, are rarely considered also. You, you already mentioned diabetes, you mentioned car cardiovascular disease, heart disease, um, you mentioned um, osteoporosis. Do, do you feel that um, a lot of people aren't aware of, of those risks? Yeah, absolutely. I think the problem is when people think about the menopause, they think about symptoms and then they think about HRT and they worry about HRT. But what they don't realise is the effect it's having on our bodies. And um, it's more significant now because we're living longer. In the Victorian times, we used to die quite soon after our menopause. So it didn't matter to so much extent. Whereas now the average age of the woman is, is around 30 years after her menopause. So it's a long time to live without those hormones and the effect it has on all these cells has a really important effect. And we know that around one in two women over the age of 50 will develop osteoporosis. One in three will have an osteoporotic hip fracture. That's a hell of a lot of women. Um, I've already said the risk of heart attacks increases, the risk of diabetes increases, and dementia affects around one in two women over the age of 80. It's really common, and it's far more common in women, and this is because of the hormone um, you know, changes that occur. That's absolutely fascinating and, and, and sobering as well. Um, Quite depressing. So, <laughs> yeah, but let's, let's talk about some of the good things. So if somebody is going through menopause, what are their options? What, what can they do about it? Yeah, so there's lots they can do. The most important thing is to be given the right advice and to get the right information. So either by, you know, check the source is the most important thing because there's still a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of um, companies that are trying to uh, monetize the menopause. So there's a huge amount of products 
supplements, all sorts that can be bought, and they're often fairly expensive. So it's very important to get the right information um, and to um, learn more about it for yourself. I think that that's really key, not listening to to someone telling you in the playground or your next door neighbor or your relative who's got their own opinion you've got to go know where your source is so having the right information is the first step and then it's trying to find someone where you can get the right help and this is a real problem because i for one didn't have any formal menopause education as part of my undergraduate or postgraduate training and that's the same for a lot of doctors and nurses so it's worth trying to find someone who has a special interest in the menopause and have a read of the nice guidance. There's a patient section, so have a read. Make sure that you're empowered so that if as a woman you go to a doctor who's going to give you antidepressants, you've got the confidence to say, actually, there's no evidence that they're going to help. I don't want antidepressants. And, you know, reading around about treatments and, you know, we've mentioned a little bit about HRT, hormone replacement therapy, but we know for the majority of women, the benefits outweigh the risks of taking HRT, because if you have the right dose and the right type, it will replace those missing hormones. So therefore, it will improve symptoms, but also, more importantly, really, it will reduce the future risk of all these conditions that we've mentioned. Um, so it's very important. So what, what exactly is HRT or what, what does it entail? So, it, it, like I say, it's only three letters. So there are different types, there are different doses, but, but the sort of main hormone for women is estrogen. Um, and there are different types. So we, we tend to prescribe or recommend estrogen through the skin as a patch of gel or there's a spray that's come out. And the reason for that is when it goes through the skin, it goes directly into the bloodstream. And so there's no risk of clot. Whereas when you have a tablet of estrogen, it gets metabolized, the liver clotting factors get activated. So there's a small, it's only small, but there's a small increased risk of clot. So through the skin is better. And then if a woman still has their womb, they need to have a type of progesterone to protect the effects of estrogen on the womb. Um, and there are different types of progesterone, but we recommend the natural body identical progesterone called Neutrogestan or micronized progesterone that's usually available on the NHS. And that comes as an oral capsule that, that women take. And then we also, as women, produce testosterone, actually in higher quantities than estrogen from our ovaries. So some women find that testosterone can be beneficial for their mood, energy, concentration, also can help libido. Um, at the moment, there isn't a licensed preparation for women, which is absolutely outrageous in my mind that we're not allowed our own hormone back. So there are ways of having it um, privately or on the NHS, the male testosterone can be prescribed in smaller doses. Um, so it, it's, it's about having the right the right combination of hormones and then for women who experience the vaginal dryness symptoms um, we often use vaginal estrogen which is very different to HRT so it can be used with HRT or it can be used on its own for those women who choose not to take HRT or can't have it for example if they've had a estrogen receptor positive cancer they might not have HRT in the first instance but they can still use vaginal estrogen. 
I was just going to say, obviously, you've mentioned quite quite a, a lot of different um, approaches and combinations. But obviously, if um, a woman is going through uh, menopause at the moment, she can speak with a GP or with a menopause specialist, and they will prescribe or go through what's the best option in her specific case. Is that right? In an ideal world, yes, hopefully. <laughs> Um, you know, we know from some research that I've done about 70% of women are offered or given antidepressants first line instead of HRT. So this is why it's really important to get the facts right. Um, on my website, um, there, I've written an easy HRT prescribing guide. So if anyone puts in easy to the um, search function, you'll see it. And a lot of women actually print that off and give it to their GP. And that, that helps because... You know, for a lot of GPs, they don't know that, about the choices, about the options. So that can be really helpful, actually, for the doctors. But sometimes it's a nurse in the practice. We have a nurse in our clinic who sees patients and can prescribe. So more and more practice nurses are prescribing. Um, so it, it's worth finding out who would, would be the best person to have the conversation with, definitely. So I, I, I think... You, you would be of the opinion that, uh, let's say, education amongst doctors or general, you know, general practitioners is quite lacking when it comes to, to HRT and menopause treatment. Yeah, sadly it is. And it's not just in the UK. It's a global problem. And um, I'm, I've actually developed a menopause education program, which is going to be launched soon with a company called 14 Fish. Um, and which was an online program, but will be available for um, GPs, nurses, pharmacists, healthcare professionals to, um, to, to learn, which I'm hoping will make it a lot more accessible because it's, you know, it's very common, but it's also very um, rewarding, like I've already said, and it's very safe. Um, everyone worries about the potential risks of HRT. So a lot of women don't take it because they're worried about the breast cancer risk. So it's probably worth demystifying that um, with the risk of breast cancer it's been over sensationalized in the in the media but also in the uh, medical press as well and it stems from a study that was done in 2002 called the women's health initiative study the whi study and basically they were giving old older types of hrt so tablet estrogen which i've already said has a small risk of clot and a synthetic progesterone, so not the same as the body identical progesterone, to women. And a small number of these women had an increased risk of breast cancer. But when they've looked at that number, it's very small, um, and it was with this synthetic progesterone. So if a woman has oestrogen on its own, so she's had a hysterectomy, there is no increased risk of breast cancer. So we know the oestrogen is the safe bit, which is very reassuring. And then we know that the um, synthetic progesterones, the risk is very low and it doesn't come into play until the woman's in their 50s. So if she has an early menopause, she can safely take HRT. And then if you look at the magnitude of risk, the risk a woman has if she's overweight or she drinks a couple of glasses of wine a night, those are risk factors for breast cancer and they, they carry a greater risk of breast cancer than taking the older type of HRT. With the micronized progesterone that I've said that we use commonly, studies have shown there's no risk of breast cancer for the first five years. And after that time, the risk is lower than this low risk. So it probably isn't even there already. Um, we've 
followed um, the studies have followed women up taking HRT for 18 years, the older types of HRT, and found that those women have a lower risk of death from all causes, including from cancer. So it's very reassuring that actually for most women, there are more benefits. And we know that taking HRT, for example, reduces the risk of heart disease by about 50%. And most women will die from heart disease related um, illness as opposed to breast cancer, for example. So, you know, we've got to look at the bigger picture. Um, and if a woman is not taking HRT, we need to think about why she isn't taking it. And often it's because she's been given the wrong information. As as somebody who basically, you know, you dedicate all of your time to uh, educating people uh, around menopause and HRT, how frustrating do you find it to have to constantly deal with, let's say, a lot of this misinformation um, about HRT? Because the Women's Health Initiative did... <sighs> It's shocking the amount of misinformation that was released from one study and how pervasive it has been, you know, within the general population. Because now when you talk about HRT, most women's reason for not wanting to use it is because they've heard previously that it, you know, increases the risk of breast cancer or something like that. And I'm just wondering, for you, how frustrating is it to be constantly trying to, uh, let's say, uh, demystify that or to kind of... Do you feel that that myth just never dies? I can't even begin to tell you how frustrated I am. And, um, you know, I feel really, I feel frustrated, but I also feel really sad, actually. Every time I do my clinic, I kid you not, I could cry because the stories that women tell me, you know, we see women in my clinic who have given up their jobs, they've given up their partners, their quality of life is terrible. They're falling asleep on the sofa in the afternoon, they're comfort eating, you know, they tell me they're joyless, they're flat. And these women have, have given up at the prime of their career and a lot of women are young. And, you know, I just think it's it's really sad. It's, it's, it's beyond sad that we have a very safe, a very um, cheap treatment that can be readily given to women, yet they can't have it. And, you know, I, I worry a lot about women's health and I also reflect a lot and I think if it was a man's problem I don't think it would be this bad because I see a lot of women who've had their ovaries removed for example from you know just benign surgery maybe they've had a cyst or maybe they've had a cancer for example in their 30s yet no one's spoken to them about HRT no one's given it to them and I see women 10 years later who've got osteoporosis and I cannot imagine castrating a man and saying we're going to take your testicles off. You'll have no testosterone. We have a treatment, but let's see how you go. Um, and then come back if there's a problem. It would just not happen. So I feel sad it's got to this stage. I understand how it has with WHI study. Um, and I'm hoping some of the work I'm doing is changing perceptions. But, you know, it, it's, it's sad. It saddens me that I have to have a private clinic because there's no jobs in the NHS to run a medicals clinic. You know, um, it's, it, 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 I just hope it will change for future generations because it shouldn't carry on like this, really. No, no, absolutely. Um, and, and what you've said about it, uh, probably it wouldn't occur if it was a man's issue, um, is a, a terrible truth, unfortunately, that we... we um, something that we would really, really need to deal with um, in the immediate future. One 
thing that I, I regularly hear um, from women who do not use HRT is, is they like to bring up the fact that it's not natural. They'll say, yeah. taking, taking these hormones isn't natural. Um, I don't want those in my body. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, how, how do you deal with, um, uh, let's say, a patient who, who might approach you with the, the same well, I think, comment? I think that's very interesting. And I think there's, there's a few things, really. We need to think about what natural is. So a lot of people will be taking supplements, for example, and they'll say, well, they're natural. Well, I only need to look out in my garden and look at some plants that I really wouldn't want to eat and they could be poisonous. So we have to be careful about what we mean. HRT used to be made from horse's urine, which is natural, but there's no way that I would want that in my body. Um, now it's derived from yams, a root vegetable, which is, you know, so safe. Um, we also know that a lot of um, supplements are down as food, food supplements so they're not regulated in any way so you and me could buy a supplement or something with a different label and it would stay the same but it might be completely different because it's not regulated in the same way whereas obviously everything I prescribe that's regulated I know exactly what it is so if you prescribe it or I prescribe it it would be the same um, and then we need to think well are having hormones in your 50s 60s 70s natural well, you could argue that evolutionary, as women, we're designed to reproduce and then die like we did in the Victorian times. So it's not natural to be living as a woman in the 60s, 70s, 80s, which puts a bit of a spanner in the works of the whole natural argument. Um, but then even if we look at the one in 100 women under the age of 40 who have an early menopause, we know the majority of those women aren't taking HRT. So actually, we are designed to produce hormones in our bodies till 51. So they should be having them until they're 51. We know only around 15% of women after having their ovaries removed are given estrogen replacement. And we know about 40, 50% of um, those operations are done in women under the age of 40. So there's a lot of, you know, problem there. So, and then, but then if you're a real devil's advocate, you should say, well, you're playing with nature. But then where do you stop as a medic? Should I not give someone treatment for blood pressure? Should I not give someone treatment who's got asthma because I'm giving them a drug to help? And then, you know, it's, it, it, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a bigger picture when you really think about, oh, it's easy to say, well, it's not natural, but actually it's not, um, it isn't natural to have this increased risk of all these diseases and live for so long if you see what I mean. So it's sort of spinning it round, really. I think that's an absolutely fantastic way of uh, describing it. And I I can't see even, well, like potentially the, the, the most hardened advocate of what I call the, 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 the nature fallacy. Um, but I, I think anybody can listen to that and hear the absolute logic in, in, in that kind of explanation of, of, of why people should be using HRT. So like just to kind of recap, we're talking about a condition that causes immediately a huge amount of issues for women uh, when they reach a certain point in their life, which uh, increases their risk of a huge number of other very, very serious conditions, which can be treated with a, what can potentially be a widely available um, treatment method in, in the form of HRT, which re reduces those symptoms or eliminates those symptoms completely. Um, and also reduces their risk of other conditions as they get older, and it helps them live a longer, happier, healthier life yeah. in all forms. 
Yeah. That, that's what we're talking about here. Yeah, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? Pretty much. Dr. Newsom, this has been an absolutely wonderful conversation. I, I can't begin to tell you um, like how detailed, like you, you've, you've spoken about the subject, how much sense you've made about the subject. And I, I, I'm, I'm speaking on behalf of like my own followers, um, but I just want to thank you so much for all of this wonderful information that you've given. What I'll do is I'm going to put links to some of the things that you've mentioned to, to your own website into the show notes of this uh, episode and this podcast. And um, I really, really hope that what you know, we've spoken about today it, it benefits um, my own followers and everybody who gets to, to listen to this in the future. And um, I really, really want to wish you the absolute oh, best you. of the best with well, your, I, mean, um... there's a, I mean, there's a lot to do. Um, we're producing a, um, a, an app coming out next month. So if people go to balance-app.com, it's a free app, which is giving evidence-based, non-biased information to women globally. So no mean feat, but um, we, it's going to be amazing. That we've got, I've got a great team of people working on that. So um, Fantastic. there'll be a way that we can, people can put their symptoms in and download a health report, which can, you can give to your doctor or healthcare professional. So that will help the doctor as well to reduce some of the consultation time. Fantastic. For, for anybody who may not be following you already, um, but wants to learn a little bit more about your work, what are some of the best ways to follow you, the best places to go to? The best way is to go to the website, menopausedoctor.co.uk, um, and then under resources, you can see the podcast booklets, you can see all the information there. Um, and then my Instagram is menopause underscore doctor. So they're, they're the best ways of uh, finding out what I'm doing in my crazy life. That's fantastic. Um, Dr. Lewis, once again, I really, really appreciate all the time that you've given us today, all your expertise, and um, thank you very, very much for this wonderful conversation. Thanks, it's been fun. Thanks very much. Take care. Take care. Have a great day. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Health Scientist Podcast. I really hope you've enjoyed and maybe even learned something from what we've spoken about today. And if you did, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use, or maybe even share a link on social media, in your Instagram stories, Facebook, Twitter, even LinkedIn. It really helps spread word of the podcast, which means I can continue to get great guests to speak about different topics in health, which means more content for you. It really means a huge amount to me personally too. If you ever want to watch one of the podcasts live or ask questions to any of the guests, you can do so by following me on Instagram at be more nutrition. That's at B underscore more underscore nutrition. And I'd love to hear your comments and feedback about the podcast. So please comment on the podcast post or feel free to drop me a message directly. And if you ever have a suggestion for a guest that you'd like to hear, please do let me know. I'll be back soon with another podcast. See you then.